Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. À tous de DBO, attention pour les décomptes finales. All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Allumage AP, décollage. Yes, it's the Euro remix of the Space Boffins jingle, welcoming you to the seventh anniversary of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. Well, we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and we've got a definite Euro theme this week as Richard visits the European spaceport in French Guiana where the new Ariane 6 launch pad is taking shape. And we talked to the German astronaut who's training with the Chinese. You're outside on the sea and uh, you check out your emergency equipment and it's so nice and relaxed, like floating there. I just, for a moment, I thought like I only need music and then it would have been my Hawaii feeling. We're joined by a guest from the first Space Boffins podcast. It's like production. Science correspondent for BBC News, Jonathan Amos. Seven years on, Jonathan, uh, we're basically all doing the same job, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully some of us have improved over that time. (laughs) You say that. Speak for yourself. I mean, the space business has has changed. Let me tell you what was in Space Boffins podcast. Imaginatively titled Space Boffins Podcast One. I don't think I understood hashtags or metadata or anything. Um, so it had David Parker as well, who's now moved oh, on. He's a big man now. Yeah, he's, he's a big man. He was with the UK Space Agency mm. then when we He was, him, yeah. yeah. So um, now he's ESA's head of human, no, head of robotic and human robotic space, human space, human space yeah. yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So we also talked about uh, the end of the space shuttle. So it was the oh, end of the space shuttle. Me. Yeah, it seems so long ago. Uh, we had. Um, uh, an interview, I think we had an interview the following week actually with a newly qualified astronaut, Tim Peake. Oh, him, I remember him. <laughs> Whatever happened to him. Yeah. And, uh, and we asked whether the UK would ever support human spaceflight. What was the answer we gave? <laughs> <laughs> Did we say yes? Uh, it's unclear. Oh, we, we were sort of vague we about hedged it. Our bets, we hedged didn't our we? bets and talked politically. But I mean, that is extraordinary. How much, particularly when it comes to human spaceflight and the and the UK, and maybe the end of the shuttle, how much things have changed in that time? Things things have flipped round, uh, haven't they? I mean, at that at that stage, I don't think any of us sort of foresaw the whole Tim Peake thing and how that would take off, the mission that he had. I mean, he's a rock star now, isn't he? I mean, you you walk into some events where Tim comes in and you've got all of these kids and it is literally, you know, um, the Beatles coming in. Yeah. And, you know. It's, it is it But is it's fantastic. lovely to see the way their eyes light yeah. up. And it's that, um, I think he's been a very good role model. And I know he, he sort of does stuff with the Girl Guides and Scouts. And um, I saw him at Farnborough last year when he was, I think it was last year or the year before, when he the kids, like you say, you know, he comes on, the kids go wild. But it's a look that says... I love all this stuff. I love space. I love science. I I love Tim. And uh, I I think that aspect of it, he's managed really, really well. Yeah, and credit where credit is due, I think. We we mentioned David Parker then. Of course, back then he was a senior figure in the UK Space Agency. um, And they had to get him that seat. 
on that mission. And, of course, that took quite a bit of negotiation, uh, came down to um, the, the Napoli uh, ESA ministerial conference, which was, I can't remember, it was the one before the last one before yes. the last one or something like that. But anyway, and the UK putting 20 million euros uh, on the table uh, to fix a dispute between the, uh, the Germans and the French um, into what was what will become the, uh, the service module for uh, the Orion um, capsule or whenever we see that. And uh, that kind of changed things there and then, and the rest has been history. Well, let's start by heading to Kourou in French Guiana. Now, this is what most of the European spaceport sounds like. The vast site is, appropriately enough, around the size of Brussels, and it's surrounded by jungle. The area is dotted with these metal-clad buildings where satellites and rockets are tested and assembled. There's a rocket fuel factory and launch pads for Ariane 5 and the smaller Vega launcher. Well, the latest construction project is the launch pad for Europe's new 62-metre-high Ariane 6 launcher, being developed at the cost according to Jonathan Amos of the BBC, of €2.4 billion. Must be true. Must be true. It's due for its maiden flight in 2020, but there's a lot of work still to do. With our hard hats on, overlooking the site, I spoke to Charlotte Vesco, head of the European Space Agency, ESA, office in Kourou. We're on the edge of the Ariane 6 launch site, under construction, as you can probably hear. There are, what, around us, about six, seven cranes. There's the gantry, which will become the main structure that moves over the Ariane 6 rocket. And then there's this enormous concrete ramp. And this is for the, the flames. This, this will protect the, the blast, if you like, from the rocket. It's, it serves several purposes. One is to channel the exhaust fumes from the rocket. Um, a second is to allow us to do what we call the deluge. We, we throw lots of water on it and that reduces the vibrations, so it reduces the impact on the launcher and the payload. And it also reduces the toxic fallout. That's very important. The size of this, I mean, the size of the whole site, for a start, the spaceport is enormous. And you only really get that when you're driving around between each part of that. But the size of, of this, again, it, it's all big stuff, isn't it? It's very big stuff. I've never seen anything so big. I'm sure we're setting a lot of records. And it would be wonderful to have an image of uh, the portique, or the gantry as we call it, next to, I don't know, the Notre Dame Cathedral or St. Paul or something, just to get an... It's very hard to see it because it's rising straight out of the flat ground, so it's nothing to compare it to. But it will be 90 metres high once it's finished. And this is a 90-metre-high building that has to move. So you have the, the rocket on the launch pad with this 90-metre building around it, and then that building has to shift backwards. There's a lot of engineering going on here. It's what we did in the old days for Ariane 4. It's also what we're doing for Vega, and it's also what they're doing for Soyuz. So it's a proven technology, except this time we're doing it on a bigger scale. But in terms of preparing the launcher, it is quicker, it's more efficient, it allows people to work in safe conditions. And also, from a weather point of view, it's, it's more convenient. Speed is one of the, the keys here. But you are looking to knock down the time to put the rocket together on the launch pad from 35 days with Ariane 5 to 12 days with Ariane 6. I mean, that's a huge change. Well, we have learned something in these last 20 years. I mean, we started working... The, the Ariane 5 became operational in the late 90s, or and so, obviously, we take, we, we learn as we go. But this kind of big construction, you don't just change it from one day to the next. And, uh, and so we, we integrated everything we know and learned 
uh, into this site. And how new will Ariane 6 be? I mean, how much of an evolution is it? And how much is it, I suppose, a revolution, if you like, in, in making this... It's a competitive market and, and competing in that market. We aim to make something that can be very attractive in terms of price and service to the customers, that can be very versatile in terms of the payload we can launch into orbit and be able to respond to the many different orbital requirements that we have because we face institutional payloads with uh, very exotic missions, but we also face our traditional market, which is the geostationary payloads, and we want to cater for all of them. And that's interesting with your role here. So European Space Agency, ESA, has put the money into making this all possible, but you will also be a client for many of the launches from here. So you have a lot of a lot invested in this. ESA is a big organization. We channel a lot of the space research in Europe in many fields like Earth observation, navigation, science, technology. And, uh, and so we have many hats. And launcher infrastructure and launcher development is part of that. And at the moment on site is brilliant because we have, we have the Galileo launch that's coming up here. We have Beppo Colombo going to Mercury. We have Aulus uh, who is arriving and um, we have Metop who is arriving. So we have four different projects on site currently, which is a, which is a major, major you know, challenge for ESA and for CSG, but it's wonderful. And in terms of the investment in this, which will also launch commercial satellites and need to compete, what's the thinking behind that from the, from the ESA perspective? Why put money into something like this? There are many reasons. One is that we have always the political will that we want an independent access to space. If we don't have our own European launch pad, then we will be always dependent on others. And uh, Ariane 5 has proven in the past to be a very competitive launcher. Ariane 4 as well. They both work very, very well. We are competitive and uh, we do good work here. So talk me through what you hope this will be like in well, we're getting what, two, three years' time when you see the, the first launch. What, how different will this be? Well, at the moment, we're standing in a big building site with piles of concrete and sand and rubble all over the place and trucks moving and crane moving. And the final product will be very simple, very streamlined. It will almost look elegant. And uh, there should be, you know, really, really simple. That's how we're going to save time. There will be fewer operations, there will be fewer manipulations, there will be less transport, um, and so fewer bottlenecks in the processing. From a client point of view, um, it should offer quicker turnaround times, quicker ways into space. And are you looking forward to seeing that first launch from here? Because just the scale of the structures here, just the scale of those... Uh, flumes the, where you can imagine the exhaust coming off that it's going to be spectacular particularly the larger Ariane 6 with four solid rockets around it from my personal perspective I find every launch absolutely spectacular and I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying that to be, you know, to be politically correct I do find every launch fantastic every launch is different every launch campaign is a challenge every client is an individual, you know, is an individual client they have their own needs and every successful launch is really, I mean, is brilliant. But of course, this will be a big spectacle. Unfortunately, we cannot be close enough to appreciate it. But we'll hear it. And it's not, I think people forget, it's, this is not simple. This is not, this is not simple technology. It's not cheap technology either. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't talk about expensive or cheap. That's not the issue. Space is complicated. We, a small error made somewhere along the track 
can cause tremendous damage and, and delays. So it's, it's just complex. The devil is in the details, and we don't get a second chance. So we have to ensure that it's properly done. This takes time and resources, but the end result, in my opinion, is absolutely worth it. My apologies for the overuse of words like big, enormous, huge and vast, but uh, it was, and in my defence, I was quite jet-lagged. Um, that's Charlotte uh, Besco, head of the ESA office in Kuru, and I'll put some pictures of the site on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, and possibly also Instagram. In fact, you've probably, if you've been uh, looking at our Facebook page um, and <laughs> the space, I'm laughing just at the thought of it, I suppose, but you see Richard um, in a variety of poses that have not really been seen since those in a knitwear catalogue um, where uh, the uh, Charlotte was saying about we have many hats. That's the sort of poses that Richard is in, <laughs> modelling various hard hats at a very jaunty angle in front of, of a launch pad. It's going to be supporting us that, the uh, Space Boffins calendar, <laughs> Richard in hard hats. Oh, God, it's terrible. It, maybe different type of hats for yeah, every month. Any, anyway, put it, putting that thought aside, um, Jonathan... Um, there's a talk there about competitiveness. Mm. Um, but the, the real reason, though, to do this is, is strategic so that Europe has its own launch In, Independent access to mm. space. That's where it all started. Yeah. And, and that is an underlying driver. And, you know, uh, the Ariane 5 is an amazing vehicle. I should just say, I, I absolutely want to be there for the Ariane 6. I, for, the, for the maiden flight of Ariane 5, um, I just started as an editor on network radio for for the BBC and it was my first programme and I had it all organised I thought this is oh this is fantastic I'm you know I've got the whole running order sorted out and all the rest of it and when it was about 20 minutes to go and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and they started gesticulating towards a screen that was hanging from the ceiling and it was all this debris coming down from the sky in French Guiana as the Ariane 5 had uh, had let go on that very first mission so um, I have a, a little bit of an association to an Ariane 5 of a nightmare association to it. <laughs> Turned out to be an extraordinary uh, vehicle. Not not just because it, it's been so reliable down the years, but also if you speak to industry people, it puts the satellites precisely uh, where they need to go. Now, I know we had this slight anomaly recently where it did the complete opposite. It got them up there, but it didn't put them in the right part of the sky. But that has been an exception to what has been a marvellous rule uh, down the years. But they do need to bring the price down. It is a very, very expensive rocket. And will the Ariane 6 be commercially competitive? Um, it probably will not get down to the prices that Elon Musk uh, can offer with uh, his 15 or so reusable rockets. But here's the thing. Um, rockets are not just about price. They're about reliability. They're about schedule. Those are the two other factors you have to bear in mind. It's no good having the cheapest rocket if you can't launch on time and it explodes when you launch. So those three together, price, reliability and schedule, they all have to be there. The other thing is, as you've hinted here, is geopolitics. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, uh, sort of underlies here for the Ariane 6 is a commitment uh, from the European Commission uh, but also from ESA member states to support the Ariane 6. So we've seen um, the European Commission commit to launch Galileo uh, on the Ariane 6, uh, Copernicus uh, as well, all of the future Sentinels. You will not see them go up on any other vehicle other than an Ariane 6 or a Vega. Um, now, will that be enough? I think Ariane Group, the people that make the Ariane 6, say they need six institutional launches a year 
from Europe to get them into a competitive position, even with the reduced price of the Ariane 6. Um, so are there six a year um, around Europe? There probably are, but it requires that commitment, which hasn't yet come, I should say, from the ESA member states to support the vehicle in the way that the Commission has suggested everybody should be doing. Uh, and we should mention, because we, we started the, the podcast talking about the UK backing human space for yeah. it. The one thing the UK doesn't do is back... No rockets. No, it no it no back it doesn't. Launches or back these particular yeah. launches. Well, and um, you know, for the UK, there are very few. Uh, how can I put this? Really indigenous uh, national payloads uh, that you would put on the the Ariane five. The only example I can think of in recent years is probably Skynet. Um, they went up on on Ariane five. But if you look at the big companies like Inmarsat in London. Well, they look across the market, um, and those companies, uh, they like to to kind of go with the different uh, rocket uh, players. They don't like to go with just one. They need more than one. They need possibly minimum two in the market to keep everybody's toes, keep everybody on their toes, but also to give them flexibility should one of them hit uh, a brick wall and, and that particular route to orbit uh, fails for a, a period of time. So... Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit difficult for the UK because we don't we don't have those big institutional payloads like they do in Germany or, or France. We put our money into ESA. That's that's kind of where we go. I'd be interested to know actually what the financial figures and profits are for SpaceX because um, the people I've spoken to about commercial um, space industry and commercial spaceports have all said it's. It's a, it's difficult to make a profit. Um, it seems to be, well, either it's government subsidy or it's some rich man's passion. And it is yeah. usually a rich man. Uh, OK. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, there, there, are, there are a few points. Uh, there. I'll come back to the, the, the rich man in, in just a second. I mean, SpaceX would not be where they are today were it not for NASA. Um, they've had the exactly. seed, they've they've had had the seed funding there. But also the... The size of the American uh, satellite market is is such um, that you can guarantee a large number of payloads a year. Um, and the Americans are not going to launch uh, a national security payload on anything other than an American rocket. So that comes back to the geopolitics as well. So, you know, they, they have more to play with uh, over there in, in that sense. Um, but they, they are going to need to recover all of the investment that they have made down the years. I think if you looked at the balance sheet now... Kind of on a day-to-day basis, probably SpaceX do turn uh, a bit of a profit, but they've they've got a lot to pay back. And Elon Musk has been very clear that he's not going to suddenly drop his prices to rock bottom uh, because he needs to recover that investment. So you know he will look very carefully at the price that the Ariane Six comes onto the market with, and he will place himself uh, just below that so that he has the the price advantage. But to come back to the uh, the rich man, of course, there's, there's Jeff Bezos. I mean, mm. that's a you know this guy has quietly worked away in the background um hasn't done any of the fuss and the fanfare or anything and turned up with a new shepherd vehicle superb you know um nobody noticed almost that he'd been doing this fantastic and you know he's probably you know he may well be taking paying passengers um into orbit uh well, suborbital space let's 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 be correct about it before richard branson how long richard branson been going at at the whole spaceship thing i mean it's been 10 years or so now hasn't it you know 
Um, you know, it'll be neck and neck. I don't know who will be, be first up there. But then he's got a big rocket too, isn't he? He's got this new Glenn uh, rocket. He, he's also threatened us with a new Armstrong rocket as well, which will be <laughs> which will be even bigger. I drove, I was at Kennedy. He's got the best name. He's got the best name. He's got the best name. He's I, I was, given some thought to that. I was at uh, uh, Kennedy a few weeks ago for the uh, the launch of the, the TESS exoplanet um, satellite. And to get into Kennedy, we drove past the Blue Origin factory there. And now talk about big, right? That word applies to the factory. Very spectacular. Does it bother you that all that's quite opaque? Whereas, obviously, the European Space Agency and Ariane Group and the, the, the various companies involved in Ariane 6, this is very much out in the open. We can see the prices. It's taxpayers' uh, money. We can see what's being built. They take journalists out there to have, have a look yeah, at I, it. Whereas, you know, Jeff Bezos and, to maybe a lesser extent, to, Elon to, Musk, it's all very secretive. Well... Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Actually, just to use the example of, of Tess, um, there was a an anomaly on the the scheduled launch day uh, of some description, and we're all standing there at the desk in the Kennedy Space Center saying, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And we didn't really get any information, you know, and the two SpaceX guys are sitting there with their SpaceX polo shirts um, because they're the contracted launch company to put up a NASA payload. And they're going, well, we'll update you, we'll update you, we'll update you. And, of course, we never really got a full explanation as to why that, that launch was, was, was put back. And they got and very I, defensive about uh, it. I well. got, well, I, you know, and I, I sort of contrast that with, you know, the old shuttle days where, you, you know, you, you, you did get a running commentary. Um, Mike Moses, who is the, um, the, the process flow uh, for, uh, for the shuttle, who's now uh, one of the big uh, cheeses at um, at Richard Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic Company. Um, you know, he, he, he couldn't stop talking. I mean, that, that's he, he explained every nut and bolt uh, in the shuttle to you. So, yeah, I think you've just got to get used to a different way of doing things. I, you know, British Airways and uh, Lufthansa, uh, they don't explain the ins and the outs of, of their business uh, to you, um, do they? I mean, that's it's, it's kind of it's changed. Everything is changing. Yeah. Well, we'll have more from uh, Kuru in our August podcast, including the Vega rocket. Still to come this time, what's the Chinese spacecraft like inside? We meet the European astronaut that's trained in it. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Oh, sorry. That wasn't me, actually. It wasn't me. <laughs> it was the same person who poured the water during that uh, Jonathan was talking. <laughs> I don't have any paper. Would you like some? No, I don't want no, any paper. No. I'm just doing a shopping list. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have more from Kuru in our August podcast. Still to come, what's the Chinese spacecraft like inside? We meet the European astronaut that's trained in it. You might not associate grassy banks with the coast. It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. Well, I'm here on the Ningaloo Reef, take people swimming with whale sharks. Just another day at the office. Yeah, just another day at the office, mate. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. The Naked Scientist podcast takes you to the science topics you need to hear about. Physics, medicine, nature. Keep up to date with what's going on in the field. First this week, the announcement from LIGO. And find out the answers to every question you never thought to ask. What kills more people, sharks or selfies? To subscribe, search Naked Scientist podcast or head over to our website. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists.
You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And on Facebook, you can find a video of a rather sweaty Richard by the Ariane 5 and Vega launch pads. Um, I was a bit concerned that you did look as though you were enjoying that a little bit too much, particularly as uh, the trip was open to both of us and Richard opened the email first. <laughs> did, you, did you see the frogs? No, we had a saw, and we saw uh, some giant spiders, saw some okay. monkeys. Not very many, not much wildlife at all. You can hear. I mean, that's the thing about the jungle. You hear this amazing wildlife, and you mm. just see some ants. Yeah. In fact, you know, you said you were you were um, last there when it was the Ariane Five was happening. When we were last there together it was nineteen ninety nine February for an Ariane Four launch, and we got to actually stand on the Ariane Five launch pad. And that was amazing to actually be stood there where you knew, you know, fire and fury would be raining down once it was going. And uh, well, that, one of I my hard that. hat pictures does feature me by an, a fueled Ariane 5. And that's extraordinary, the access. And we're coming back to talking about, you know, not knowing what Jeff Bezos is doing or um, what's going on to actually have the access to get so close to a real rocket. And I, I can't help the sort of excitement of this whole thing. You know, we can talk about prices and, and launches, all the rest of it, but it's, it's, it's really exciting stuff. So the thing I'd really like to have a go at, the umbilical tower that, you know, stands next to the Ariane 5, they work on that, clearly. Um, and there is this giant sock that goes down the middle of it. So if there's a problem or something and people are on the launch pad and they have to get out really quickly, of course, it takes too long to climb down a stepladder or go in a lift Ooh. or anything. And you jump into this sock. Like a water slide. Like a water slide. And, you, and what you're supposed to do is just push your elbows out and that will slow you down. And then you, and, so you just... And take the skin off your elbows <laughs> out of thought, yes. <laughs> But I like the That'll idea a of that. I like that a great experience, yeah. wouldn't it? I hope they have one of those for the Ariane 6. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we go on uh, here's some any other business that we've got to do last time um, but I do need to set it up properly in a podcasty way so here we go previously on Space Boffins Skylab Houston everybody around here has looked at the bird and it looks real good Roger Roger and uh, you're being awaited by the USS Ticonderoga and uh, we're waiting to see you back here in Houston too alrighty you can relay to the Tyco. We've got their Fox Corpin and our hook is down. That was from the first Skylab mission and it completely baffled us. And Mick Bremner, who's uh, in the UK, he wrote on our Facebook page, the Skylab banter at the end must be from a naval aviator. He's just been told that the USS Ticonderoga, which is an aircraft carrier, is waiting for them. He says that their hook is down, alluding to the arrestor hook, which naval aircraft use to grab the wire across the carrier's deck. As for Fox Carpet... I've no idea. Fortunately, though, Leonard Frankel in Melbourne added, I tried to work out what Fox Corpin means, gave up, and Googled Skylab 2, and our hook is down. See, top journalism there. <laughs> uh, that got an excerpt from Homesteading Space, the Skylab story, that explains the whole bit, saying it's Fox Corpin, and that means the carrier's heading. So also part of joking about landing on the carrier, altogether meaning tell the carrier we know they're heading and have deployed our hook for landing. Oh. There we go. I love the way everybody sort of got together to <laughs> yeah. talk about See, that's, that. that. That's, 
audience interaction. I, I also like the way actually there's some guy You've been striving sh- for that for I, seven years. No, I should have got I should have got his name actually. The guy who replied either Facebook or something with a picture of him with the T-shirt saying Orcs. Was it Orcs? In uh, SCE to Orcs. SCE to Orcs. Yep. Which is, uh, yeah. Do you know that? John? I, no, I was just thinking that the the new NASA administrator he used to do that, didn't he? he used to land planes on carrier decks and stuff like that. So he would know all about oh. it. Mm. Oh. Mm. The guy that now believes in ch- climate change. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Pleased to hear it. Yeah. Well, next, my new favourite astronaut, Matthias Mara, my co-commentator for the recent Alexander Gerst mission to the International Space Station. Now, Matthias only recently qualified as an ESA astronaut, but since 2012, he's been building bridges with the Chinese space programme. Last year, along with fellow ESA astronaut Samantha Christopheretti, he took part in sea survival training with Chinese astronauts near the coastal city of Yantai. There is a brand new centre that is only used for sea survival training. And there we had our own accommodation. It looked like an oversized youth hostel, I have to say, where all the astronauts, the Chinese astronauts, and we, Samantha and me, um, lived in the same corridor, so door to door, and uh, we shared the food, so we had breakfast, lunch and dinner together, and for two weeks we lived together, and that was a quite intense experience, because uh, I mean, it, it, like, it felt like being part of a family, and uh, that's completely different from my training experience that I have in Houston, where I live in a hotel, or in, where I rent an apartment, and I meet only my colleagues during the two or three hour training session and for the rest of the day I'm independent. And was that quite good in a way that you actually because you can I mean it's it's an obvious if you were in a business it's an obvious sort of team building idea that you're you're all together and you'll either get on or you'll start to really hate each other. Absolutely in the west I have to say Europe or the US we do team building training so we have HBP training so human behavior and performance training we are brought together and we share a certain amount of time and we are exposed to a difficult environment to see how the team dynamic um, evolves and, and develops. And um, in China, you kind of you don't need this because you live together and the Chinese astronauts, they always live together. They even spend their vacation together. So it's, they know each other perfectly well. And, and so it's, they are like brothers and sisters. And, and when I lived there and Samantha had the same feeling, we felt so warm-heartedly accepted into their family. So it's really a nice feeling. And I immediately thought like I could start tomorrow with them and fly to space. And I knew it would have been perfect. What was the spacecraft like? Because it, it looks very much like a, an adopted, slightly adapted Soyuz spacecraft, which the Russians use. What was it actually like, though? So the spacecraft that we used for the sea survival training was only the return capsule. It's much bigger. It has a larger diameter and it is higher. So uh, for the sea survival training, that was really nice because in the Russian capsule, when you land on water, you change from the spacesuit and you change into a rubber suit that protects you in the water. And the Soyuz is so tiny, so cramped that only one by one you can change. And the other two need to help you and need to pull on the, on the trousers and on, on the spacesuit so 
that you can change in dress. In the Chinese capsule, you have so much space, so we could easily, the three of us together at the same time, undress and dress into the rubber suit. And uh, we have so much space that we even have uh, inflatable rubber boats, which we don't have on the Russian space capsule. So the procedure is you change from your pressure or your space suit into the rubber suit, then you open the hatch, and the commander gets out, uh, he takes the first dinghy, inflates it, and then he gives the command that the other two exit, and the other two share a larger dinghy. And uh, so it's very easy. And then you're outside on the sea, and uh, you check out your emergency equipment, and it's so nice and relaxed, like floating there. I just, for a moment, I thought, like, I only need music, and then it would have been my Hawaii feeling. While the Russian sea survival is you jump into the water, and there is no boat, and then so you need to actually stay in the water, and it gets cold and chilly, and so it's much, much harder. So does that suggest that the Chinese have have almost jumped a level of technology that's actually quite advanced? And were you surprised by that, the the state of of the spacecraft? I was surprised by the dimensions that, they have in this capsule and they have all the functionality and obviously they had a good look at the Russian hardware. They learned what was the good parts and they also looked like, okay, what can we improve? Because, I mean, uh, the Soyuz is 50 years old, so obviously in 50 years engineering had done a huge step forward and they're clever people and uh, they're very focused and so I think their space station will also be a very modern one and um, they will be very successful in space. And what stage are you at now with your relationship with the Chinese? And, I mean, what do you come away with from that that experience? So we are now at a stage where we talked a lot with the Chinese and we said, okay, now we understand each other much better and we want to fly a European astronaut in the future to your uh, space station. We had a first training experience of a of a Taikonaut training in Europe that was actually our HBP training, so the crew performance and behavior training in a cave in Sardinia. And, uh, well, I mean, he was, he's a great guy, so he fit in easily into this ISS crew that trained in the, in the cave. And last year, Samantha and me were in, uh, in China. The next step would be, and actually we hoped for that it will be 2018, but it might slip to 2019, system training in the Chinese space capsule so the the Shenzhou capsule it would be to familiarize ourselves how this capsule works there is a big difference with the um, Soyuz the Soyuz has a left seater which is the co-pilot and uh, we Europeans are always eager so like oh we want to become co-pilot so we went to China and we said like we need to negotiate hard so we asked uh, we want to have a left seat and they said like okay and we thought like something's wrong here so and then we only figured out that the right seat has to go pilot <laughs> so where does this leave you could you have yet to fly could you go for you could go for soyuz you could maybe fly with the chinese you could maybe fly in one of the new united states spacecraft like the the dragon or orion all correct i'd like to add one more option that i have it's the sls because uh, so I was hired in the astronaut selection for missions to the, to the ISS, the moon or beyond. And so all these options are open and, and it's like now the Chinese space station even is another option. And um, that leaves it very unclear for me, like, okay, which spacecraft will I fly in? And flying in the spacecraft also defines the language that you need to speak. So in the Soyuz, you need to speak Russian. 
in the Chinese spacecraft, obviously, you need to be able to speak Chinese, and in the other vehicles, it would be English. And to keep all options open, I learn all these languages. So how's your Chinese? It's good, but it needs still some improvement. Last year for the sea survival training, we had the training in Chinese, and uh, the Taikonauts also speak some English, so it was a mix of both. But sea survival training, it's much easier for communication because if somebody tells you this is the water, I mean, it's obvious, you see it, you understand it. But running an experiment, reading a procedure that has maybe 20 pages written in Chinese characters, that is still a killer for me. And it, it might even remain a killing argument. And so one of the discussions that we have with the Chinese colleagues is like, how can we enable non-native Chinese speakers being efficient, being fast, working on procedures. So could we maybe have bilingual procedures, translate key procedures into English, or have a different way to make it easier for us and avoid the, the complicated Chinese uh, character system? Can you give me a demonstration? I don't speak any Chinese, so you could say anything. What it means is what does that mean? It means my name is Matthias Mora. My Chinese name is Matian. It means the, the horse of the heaven. And um, I would very much love to fly into space together with Chinese astronauts and to work on the Chinese space station. Easter astronaut Matthias Mora and uh, I great guy. Yeah, it's really I love brilliant. him. Say my new favorite astronaut. Um, I really want human performance and behavior training. So um, I remember when uh, that class of astronaut was was selected. You know the Tim Peake class because he essentially now he he joins he's part, that, of, that, he's part yeah. of that class. The shenanigans they call themselves, mm. uh, don't they? And it was very apparent to me uh, when I was put in a room. I actually went um, when they were selected, but before they formally joined ESA. We went to Kennedy to um, have a look at a shuttle and also the Ares 1 rocket. I don't know if you remember the old uh, constellation, wasn't it? Was going to What's be become the, the SLS. Yeah, it was become. Yeah. Well, but this was sort the kind of. of yeah. This was that there was going to be two rockets. There was yeah. going to be a mini rocket that went up, took the astronauts up, and then there'd be a big rocket which you'd be joined, blah, 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 uh, and all the rest of it. So we went to see this stuff um, just to sort of hang out at Kennedy. And uh, just being with that group. Um, was amazing because instantly they got on. Um, and that was no accident. You know, these, these individuals are chosen very, very carefully uh, to be able to live in a tin can for six months and get on with people. So it's no surprise that he's a nice guy, that you want to get on with him, because that's one of the primary reasons. He has to do all of the other stuff, obviously. He's got to have the expertise. But his personnel skills have to be tip-top. So I think also it's a big me. advantage, I think, for Europeans, particularly mainland Europe, because they are often living bordering several other countries. You, the people there, whenever we go to mainland Europe, you always feel slightly embarrassed that they will converse in French, German, it, yeah, Dutch, indeed. Italian. Yeah. And there's, you know, there we have a German doing an interview in Moscow with um, in English who can also speak Chinese. I know Samantha Cristoforetti speaks about six She's languages. She's an amazing linguist. She is absolutely incredible. But I do also think, because um, it was two years ago, um, I discovered that Samantha was learning Chinese. Mm. And I thought, whoa, this is, you know, a lot, a lot of foresight here. That's 2000, beginning of 2016. And um, it does feel as though Issa has 
played a very smart game here in that they're covering all their bases in terms of who they can work with. Yeah, I, you know, obviously there are these long-term issues that the Americans have with China. And so you're, you know, I doubt you're going to see, certainly in the near term, even the medium term, um, an American mission going to the, the future Chinese space station. It does make me laugh somewhat, though, because I remember the struggles that Tim had learning Russian, Tim <laughs> Peake. And uh, whenever I used to see Tim, I said, how, how are the language lessons going? And he'd go, oh, oh, no. I said, come on, just all you have to do is to be able to ask for a beer. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you can go into a, a bar and say, can I have a beer in the local language, it's fine. I don't think that works on the space station. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But the thought of Tim having to learn Chinese, I think that probably would be his, his, his big nightmare, I think. But now, you know, Europe can effectively, they don't have to rely on America and they don't have to rely on Russia. They have their own spaceport and they could also work with the Chinese. I think that's, it, it's, uh, I mean, that's very strategic. Uh, absolutely. And you, you're already seeing a, a number of uh, experiments uh, going up. Uh, on uh, Chinese missions. Uh, Germans have been very forward in, in doing that. Um, and we're only going to see more of it. And, you know, I, I fully expect uh, the first sort of, uh, f- if not Russian, obviously uh, foreign Western uh, astronaut to, to go on the uh, the new Chinese space station to uh, to be a European. Definitely. So, so there's this theme here of European independence mm. in space. Um are you nervous of the Trump presidency in terms of what he's going to do for space? And his, there's a brilliant video going around about what is Space Force. And, uh, and it was very clear from that particular uh, film, although I think it was for a, a comedy program, uh, that uh, no one was quite clear what the Space Force actually was, yeah. apart from the fact that it, it potentially breaks the Outer Space Treaty for peaceful purposes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, to be honest, I'm more worried about Europe and the United Kingdom. Um, and Brexit. With Galileo. Well, I mean, more generally speaking, yeah. because of the way that, that space is, is organised uh, in Europe. You know, you have this separate legal entity, which is called the European Space Agency, and um, this uh, large uh, organisation called the European Union. Um, they are not one and the same. And yet you're in this strange position now where what the European Union wants to do in space is becoming more and more what ESA uh, is doing uh, in space. And so how those two organisations go forward together is going to be very interesting with one of the largest countries in Europe, one of the biggest economies, being outside of one of those organisations. So, um, you know, presidents come and go, um, but we're about to hardwire a relationship or rewire the relationship, space relationships in Europe, um, you know, for the next 10, 20 uh, years and um, even longer. So I think that's kind of... uh, more of a concern to me when I look at the space landscape. I mean, you must have heard the same as I have for the last, ever since it was announced that uh, we would be leaving Europe. People within the space agency have said to me, sure, they've said to you, off the record, this is not good. And I have heard already over the last year, well, over a year ago, of um, jobs and contracts not going to British scientists and organisations because they were worried about the future. So we're already losing work within the space industry. Do you see this? I mean, I know the UK is working on, a, you know, having its own spaceport, but they, they don't have their own launches. Do you see this as a potentially um, the end of something that 
is really big and important economically for the UK. No, I, I, I don't see that. Um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of innovation in the United Kingdom. And I, you know, whatever negotiated settlement um, London and Brussels uh, come to in the end, there will always be a, a space industry um, in the United Kingdom. And it'll, it'll be quite vibrant uh, as well. Uh, I have no doubt about that. Uh, but there are these big projects, and uh, we've yet to see how uh, they will fall out and the relationships that we have. Um, you know, personally, on a, a totally personal uh, level here, and I'm, I'm not speaking um, in any sort of, how should we say, uh, authoritative uh, fashion here, I doubt the UK will go forward with um, its own satellite navigation system. Um, there are a number of roadblocks down down the road yeah, I uh, that I think I that will make it very hard for the UK to do that. Um, and, you know, also that we've seen the Treasury taking, you know, weapon systems off carriers and all the rest of it because it's too expensive. So, um, you know, those are long-term projects uh, which they would have to commit to and commit to the long-term. And, you know, politics is a short-term game. So whether... You know that kind of approach will work. I, you know, I'm I'm doubtful. But you know, th- this is not totally dead in the water uh, yet. Um, you know, there are there is a negotiation still going on, and so uh, you know, I hope that they come to uh, some some agreeable settlement. Uh, you know, one of the best interventions I've seen, I think, is from um, Tom Enders, the uh, the boss of Airbus. You know, who's who said to Brussels, he said to London, look, you know, there are two nuclear powers. Um, in Europe. One of them is France and the other one is the United Kingdom. So the idea that that actually we can just sort of, you know, put the United Kingdom over there and somehow it is a third country outside of Europe, just, you know, it doesn't, it do, that just doesn't wash. Uh, you know, I, I know the UK is coming out of, of the European Union, but it, it, it isn't just another third country. It isn't. And so uh, Brussels and London have to work through that and decide what sort of relationship it's going to be in the future. And, of course, everything cascades from that. I and mean, it's, it's not just the space industry. It's, it's fish. It's, you know, everything else uh, as well. Um, and, you know, we need clarity. We need clarity not just on Galileo but Copernicus as well. Nobody seems to talk about Copernicus, the Earth Observation I think we'll do that in a program. future podcast, you need to, I think. You need yeah. to do that. Um, yeah. That's very, very important. Absolutely. Our thanks to BBC Science correspondent John Amos, our first and now seven years later, Yay. Uh, back again. Uh, I want to do it a little bit sooner next time, I think. I'll check my diary. All right. <laughs> Good. Uh, do get in touch with us. Any comments, uh, questions, suggestions within reason, obviously. Uh, Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientist. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Next time, as I mentioned, more from French Guiana when I go inside the control bunker. I know! <laughs> and uh, the Vega launch pad. In the meantime, so we'll be at Farnborough Air Show. So uh, do yeah. say hello to us. On her, Space Day, there. I'll be there. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work.